Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is my co-host and not a darn cat, Mr. Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm doing well, Andy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, you can find us at our Facebook page, Once Upon a Disney Podcast. And before we get started, we have a great conversation to share with you uh, with Mr. Tom Provost, who we will introduce in just a little bit. But before we get started, Larry thought it would be a great idea, and I agreed, that to give you a little bit of a synopsis of the movie, That Darn Cat, because some of you may not have seen it. All right, so That Darn Cat begins where we meet this rascal of a cat, who goes by the name of DC for Darn Cat. He is owned, kind of, by two sisters, Patricia and Ingrid. Um, and we see him go around town doing all sorts of mischief, but he stumbles onto two, the hideout of two bank robbers and their kidnapped hostage. The kidnapped hostage, she uh, sees DC removes his collar, replaces it with her own watch into which she's carved help. That watch makes its way back to Patty, the younger sister, who immediately somehow intuits it belongs to the kidnapping, to the kidnapped victim. And we're leaving a lot of uh, madcap hijinks out of this. Lots of madcap hijinks. (laughs) So... Throwing all that out, she does what any person would do who found a watch with the first three letters of the word help in it. She immediately contacts the FBI. And of course, the FBI immediately pounces on the case and spends a great deal of time through Agent Kelso tracking down DC in the hopes that DC will lead them to the kidnappers. And to be very fair to them, the FBI just wasn't that busy in the 1960s, right? I mean, what was there? Like... (laughs) What was Nothing. there to look for? I, I'm pretty sure the 1960s were a quiet, non-turbulent time. I'm sure. With no, no <laughs> tensions whatsoever from, Nothing. W- no. from what, what I'm given to understand. So that's the basic gist of the story. Agent Kelso and Patty work with DC to find the kidnappers and foil them and rescue the kidnapping victim. Along the way, there are a lot of different subplots, including... Patty's boyfriend, Canoe, who isn't making as much effort in the relationship as he should be. Is he making Uh, any effort? (laughs) Sure. Okay. Is he making any effort? Well, I mean, he's there. Then Patty's sister, Ingrid, is pursued by the obnoxious Gregory, who she is not into, but she becomes into Agent Kelso. The next door neighbor is very concerned about all of these boys going into the two sisters' house, and she gets into some mischief herself, despite her husband ultimately turning her into the police for trying to get involved. Lots of madcap hijinks, lots of misunderstandings. Ultimately, the forces of good defeat the forces of evil, and everybody falls in love. Is that is that fair, Andy? I think it's a pretty good synopsis, Larry. I really do. I think you did great. Cool. The one thing that I'll say is at one point, the FBI is about to give up on the case. Patty takes matters into her own hands and finds a a bewildered jeweler, elderly jeweler, and convinces him to lie to the FBI in order to get the FBI back on the case. That's about it in a nutshell. I think that's it. 
I think that is it. And I think that's all you really know in order to appreciate what we're going to say in just a couple of seconds. Yeah. So enjoy. I know. I think this conversation with Tom is just so fantastic. And let's just cut in right here and we'll introduce him and get started. Andy, we have a guest star today. We sure do. So to introduce our new guest star, I always feel like saying that because Kermit says that, right? To introduce our guest star. Okay. So he is a graduate screenwriting professor at Pepperdine University in Malibu. He is the writer-director of the film The Presence, starring Mira Sorvino and Shane West. He is the teacher of the very popular series of classes, Cinema Language, the Art of Storytelling in LA and around the country. And he's the director of the LA-based nonprofit Bags and Grace, and you should check that out at bagsandgrace.com. He's an incredible chef, and he's my absolute favorite person to try a new restaurant with, Mr. Tom Provost. Hey, Tom. Hello. Thank you for that. Thanks. Thank you. So we let our guests pick our topics or our movie, and so you felt like we really needed to watch 1965's That Darn Cat, and I'm just curious as to why we're watching that movie and what you thought about it. Well, actually, yeah, I'm doing a kind of a personal experiment of watching all these Disney movies from my childhood that meant a lot to me. Most of which I didn't see in the theater, but I saw on this Sunday night, wonderful world of Disney. And so I've been watching a bunch of them, everything from absent-minded professor, professor and old yeller to all the Kurt Russell movies and freaky Friday. And some of them are not good and don't hold up like which mountain escaped to which mountain, but I'm stepping on some toes there. But when I watched That Darn Cat, I was just kind of amazed by how funny it was, how much fun it was. And in particular, as a screenwriting professor, uh, which I don't mean to say that I'm right about everything, the script was so tight and so clever and so good. And then I found out it was up even for a Writers Guild Award that year. So I thought it would be an interesting movie to discuss because I was surprised by how well it held up. Absolutely. You said it was in our pre-production, you said it was the sixth highest grossing movie of 1965. And it's also, you know, some of the movies like Escape to Witch Mountain are clearly created for children and then adults can kind of go. But this is much more of an adult movie. Uh, It's like Freaky Friday also, which I loved and I hadn't seen in a long time, has some shockingly adult things going on in Freaky Friday, besides being a blast. And this one has the same thing. It has a lot of very adult elements. So it's not really a kid's movie. Well, and that brings us to our next question, really, uh, Tom, which is, what kind of movie is this? What's the genre? If you were going to define it, what is it? (laughs) I would throw it into the comedy thriller genre, although it's not truly a thriller, but it, it makes me think of like two huge hits 10, 12 years after that were Silver Streak and Foul Play, which were both written by the same guy, and uh, they were kind of Hitchcock homages. And Foul Play in particular was an enormous hit with Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase in his first starring role, and a blast of a movie, Dudley Moore's first American movie. But I would say this kind of fits into that because it is more funny than thriller, but it does have thriller aspects because, for me, importantly, there are two bad guys who are holding a woman hostage, and they are going to kill her. There is no—they say we are going to kill her. So— the stakes are much higher than you normally get in a fun Disney movie. Right. It's like yeah. a thriller for children, though, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's still, you still have the slapstick comedy. And I noticed that you also have the same lighting and sort of set design and palette as the Batman TV show. Adam <laughs> West. So it sort of has that same look and feel. And, of course, you have the, you know, 
Frank Gorshin is reprising his bit of the Riddler right, and Iggy right. the Robber. I was going to say, can't we do one Frank Gorshin conversation without bringing up the Riddler? Can't we make <laughs> Frank Gorshin happy and, and remember him for this? But in terms of genre, for me, if you told me that the story of this movie was there are two separate movies that Disney is making simultaneously, and suddenly they realize they only have the budget for one. <laughs> and so they had to, they like, we've got, we've got, let's find a way. Let's bring the cat from our comedy movie over to this high tension thriller. And we'll just, we'll just put it to, I would believe that as the story. <laughs> it almost feels to me like it's a reverse version of WandaVision, which just aired, which, yes. uh, you know, the, the premise of WandaVision, the reverse of it would be most of the world is this wacky comedy place full of misunderstandings and people bumping into each other and jumping on cars. But there is a tiny reality bubble around this apartment where the stakes are life and death. And if you walk through the bubble, you've entered into a thriller. Yes, that's good. I have no problem with you saying that. <laughs> I would argue, though, how is it marketed? So, like, the title of it is That Darn Cat. Exclamation point, by the way. Exclamation point, which <laughs> connotes excitement, as we all know. Yes. But so it's a little difficult to reconcile these really tense scenes. Like, I imagine you're like, oh, it's a cat movie. I'm bringing my kids. And then we're like, we're going to kill her, right? We can't kill her yet. <laughs> but we're going to. Is it going to have to be cinematic? Are we going to? No, 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 no blood. We'll, we'll make it quick. And I was like, whoa, little Bobby sitting next to me. Where is the kitty? <laughs> yeah. But you have well, you have to have stakes, though, right? Like Escape, sure. to Witch, Escape to Witch Mountain, which is fun, but is not a good movie. There are no stakes because the kids' powers are so astronomical. There's no way that anybody could ever cause them trouble, except when they're so stupid they forget they have the powers. But So they're not really stakes in that movie. You're never worried about the kids. Here, I'm genuinely worried these two guys might kill this lady before... Dean Jones and Haley Mills get in there. So it does have tension driving it forward. Even when we're getting the slapstick at the drive-in and the slapstick with uh, the neighbors, you know, because we have all the neighbors all around doing all the funny stuff. So Right, because even through all of that, you still have that clock that's ticking, right? You still have exactly. that, like, are they going to kill her before exactly. the cat gets there, right? Or are we going to kill her before, you know, the FBI can get there? So. See, and I'm going to do a confession here just for our podcast audience listening at home. Tom and Andy know that, you know, this was not my favorite movie. <laughs> it's not entering my top 10 anytime soon. And that's fine. I'm not here. Look, I'm not going to argue with results. If it was one of the top movies of 1965, highest grossing movies, it's a success. I will say it's not for me. And part of the reason it's not for me is it's very hard for me to watch a scene where people are jumping from the top of cars to cars in a drive-in movie theater when I realize that in this other room there's a woman whose life and death is happening and this car chase, this this jumping from, from car to car is getting us nowhere near. In fact, with every leap of the car, they are getting further and further away from, from the thriller in the apartment building. Look, I understand what you're saying. I'm going to say this goes back to one of my top 10 movies. That Darn Cat is not one of my top 10, but one of my top 10 movies, I think one of the best movies of all time and very influential 
1939 Hitchcock film, The Lady Vanishes. I love it's, The Lady Vanishes. It's incredible, but lots of tension. People's lives are at stake. And yet it is a hilarious movie all uh, the way through. If only it was Disney and we could do it for this podcast, because <laughs> I think Lady Vanishes is underrated. It is the one part where they look at the window as right before the window goes into the tunnel, Tom. Oh, oh. it's no, it's a perfect movie. It's perfect. Yes, I agree. It's great. So, Tom, we always do this one uh, section for our podcast called the Manish Tana. Okay. And for our podcast listeners who might not have heard us do this segment before, the Manish Tana uh, opening, it's the beginning of the opening prayer of the four questions that, as a Jewish person, we recite at a Passover, which is Manish, Manish Tana. Why is this night different from all other nights? And so the question... This is not the same thing as the inciting incident of the movie, although sometimes it can be the inciting uh, incident of the movie. But the question that we ask here is, that darn cat has been a rascal for quite some time. We could have started with this cat earlier. We could. I have no doubt that that darn cat will be a rascal after it. Why is this the section of that darn cat's life story? that we've, we've come together to witness. And the Manish Tana doesn't always have a difficult answer, and I'm not sure it's difficult for this one. But Andy or Tom, do either of you want to take a stab at it? Well, we meet the villains before we meet the heroes in this movie, yes. which I find really kind of interesting. And it's the same thing that we, you know, several other Disney movies start this way too. It's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, Lilo and Stitch starts this way, it's where you have this more prolonged moment with this thing that happens. And so... We have this thriller, but it's not so mysterious because we already know who done it, right? And there's no real moral ambiguity. So there are children and families that are kind of waiting to spend, they're going to spend the next several minutes kind of waiting for justice. That's really what they're looking for here. Yes. And the exposition of the film really starts at the very, I mean, the minute the movie starts, the exposition with the Bobby Darren song and the Sherman Brothers, they create this song that tells us, hey, we need to be about the cat's character. And we can, here's this cat. And so we know that when the cat enters the scene, it's, it's somehow going to foil this operation of these two characters. But it's really interesting to start with the villain because you dive right into the tension of the movie. And at 11-ish minutes, the inciting incident here does happen, which is when Mrs. Miller puts the watch on the cat's neck. Yeah, I would. so the only question I would ask, and of course, I know what the real answer is. The real answer is logistics and budget of the movie. So one could argue that we could start the movie with the villains actually performing their heist and taking her hostage before getting her to the apartment. I'm sure that that must have been discussed as they were writing the screenplay. And yes. probably probably that would be too expensive a sequence for them to have shot. But I think in a more modern version of this movie, that probably is where we would begin. With, well, with maybe a little more scary and, for children, too, to actually watch somebody get kidnapped <laughs> and, and And that's the thing, Andy. If it's a kid's movie, that they actually don't... The first human characters we see are the villains, right? We do yes. actually meet that darn cat first. And I have to tell you, that opening sequence with the dog, I love that opening sequence with the dog, where the cat plays a trick on the dog to get the dog's oh, yeah. food. I think that is phenomenal animal acting. The cat is amazing all the way through the movie. And I hate cats. And this cat is incredible. What the cat does and how he looks and all that is amazing. If you told me that that cat was classically trained, 
uh, and had a career on in the theater prior to doing this, I would believe it. The cat is by and I don't mean this as an insult to the other human performers because I think the performances <laughs> are pretty good. But the cat is amazing, charismatic personality with one look like Norma Desmond, you get everything that the cat is thinking at any given time. Uh, I was amazed by it. And was also in The Incredible Journey. Same cat. So, definitely so I wonder if that cat. comes from just years of Disney shooting nature and shooting animals because they were, you know, they were, you know, really pros at finding these stories within nature. You know, they'd shoot an animal and shoot an animal and they'd just kind of make this, you know, and then take it to the cutting room and go, okay, where's the story? Well, and also back then, something that has been lost now with CGI is you had all these people whose entire careers were devoted to training animals for TV shows and movies. And they were great at what they did. So they could, they would find the right animal who could do anything and spend so much time with them and train them. These people who trained animals back then, 60s and 70s, they were great at it. So tell them in pre-production, you were talking about how everything in the first 30 minutes or so sets it up and pays it off beautifully. So I learned about hammock is basically a setup and payoff. So if you think of a hammock also, what is actually a hammock? It's this thing that's tied between two trees, two big knots on either side with an elongated U. If you think of the first knot as the setup, The hammock is what's between them. And then the payoff is the other knot. It's a little bit easier on a whiteboard. But then, so if you take a script and you imagine the script is just one straight line, a really good script will have anywhere from 10 to 40 or 50 hammocks within them. And they could be all different kinds of sizes. And you can have a setup and payoff in one scene. You can have a setup and payoff over the course of a couple of scenes. And when I draw these out for my students on a really good script, you have all these hammocks that are interchanging. And a really well-constructed movie can have a long hammock. So what's the biggest hammock in setup and payoff in That Darn Cat is in the title sequence. We see him go make eyes with the female cat who's trapped inside and the owner chases him away. And what's the last thing we see? He and the female cat coming out from under the stairs with their kittens. So he has succeeded and now he's dead. So that's a huge hammock. But this movie has so many hammocks, so many setups and payoffs, and everything in that opening title sequence, and then everything in the Mrs. Miller villains section is setting things up that pay off in the movie. There's nothing superfluous there at all. Right. It's no all there for a reason. No wasted yeah. real estate. Right. Right. Exactly. None at all. I think sometimes we, when I get scripts and I read them, they'll be, and sometimes even in my own work. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times in my own work, let's be honest. We all do. I'll add a detail and I'll be like, oh yeah, why did I, that doesn't even need to be here because nothing ever happens to it, right? Well, my favorite, and I just got a script like this from someone is, and again, we all do it, is the scene begins with, hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? Oh, I'm cool. Is everything all right with your mother? Yes. And then these things go on before you get to the meat of the scene. And I'm like, no, just cut into the meat of the scene. And something I love to do, which is very mean, is that in my screenwriting class, when my students turn in their first 20 pages, that's the first thing they turn in, they give them to me. And then I play the beginning of The Fugitive, a movie with the the wildest first 15 minutes in the history of movies. Like so much happens in the beginning of The Fugitive in the first 15 minutes, murder and a trial. And he gets sentenced to death and he, you know, the train wreck and all that kind of stuff. And so I show that and then I say, hey, so what happened in your first 20 pages? Which is all filled with, hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> right. Should we stop?
start talking about some of the characterizations? Sure, absolutely. I love, I love how with DC uh, in particular, in that scene where the duck is being described, you can see it on the cat's face that he is going to go get that duck. You know it. The second, like, I'm like, uh, why are you? It's almost like he's like, this is his trick. You're talking as if I'm not in the room, as if I can't understand you. And DC totally can. I said this earlier. I think the performance of the cat as as a uh, trickster, as a mischief maker, as someone who can't as who someone who can't be controlled. I think all of those things happen very quickly in yes. the movie. And there's a consistent characterization of the cat in this way throughout. Yes. Yes. Well, and what's brilliant about that too, Larry, is that like we know all of that in the opening exposition. We know what he's going to do. If we didn't have that opening exposition of him being a charmer, and it's there's no dialogue. It's just the cat doing things, right? He's a charmer. We know he's an opportunist. He's a lover. He's food motivated, right? So we know he's we know with the salmon, he's going to go for the duck. Well, I would throw out. I would throw out. And if this movie were being made today, and I don't think this would be a choice I want to see. I'm going to say this in the movies in the on the scorecard of me giving points to the movie. The modern version of that darn cat would probably be we get a lot of voiceover from the cat that they they wouldn't trust that we could get the cat's motivation from the body language and it would be like uh, you know as Roddy McDowell comes in the cat would be like this guy again I'm going to go pee on his tires. Completely agree it's painful but yes but, and I'm glad to not see that here. I'm glad that they can that they have the ability to just trust that the performance is going to come through from what we see, what we experience. It's visual, and I, I very much enjoy that. Let's talk about Dan and Iggy. The, they're the first people we meet. Which I have a great question about Dan and Iggy. I want to hear it. So my question for you is: These two men, obviously, they are our antagonists. They are our villains. Yes. Which of these two men? is the bigger monster. I mean, Frank Gorshin is depicted as the one because he's he's got the trigger finger. He's very much on edge. He could lose it at any moment and kill her. But I think uh, Dan is actually the worst monster because he's in control and he's the one who's making the decisions. He's the one who finally does decide, yes, we're going to kill her. He's running the show. I would agree with you. There's something about the performance of Neville Brand as Dan, where it's like he's capable of summoning a surface kindness that makes us think that maybe he actually plans on letting the victim go. And he has to be able to sell that for the victim to possibly believe it, right? Yes. And that maybe he's planning a double cross of Iggy, and he really does, he's like, Listen, I don't want to commit murder. It's I find him more sinister. And the funny part is Iggy, of all the characters in this movie, kind of gets the save the cat moment early on that invites us to like him. Right. Which is that he actually feeds the cat. There's a part of him, I think, that when he meets the cat, Iggy's like, you're a scoundrel just like me. I respect the hell out of that. Like like he finds a there's a humanness that comes out in his scenes with DC. Completely that, agree. Uh, if Dan had been down on the street in front of the butcher shop and that same interaction would have occurred, Dan would have just kicked DC into the wall. Right. So I agree with you. Yes. Andy, where do you land on, on the Dan and Iggy? 
Where do you land? Is, is one oh, more scary? I think, I think you guys are right. And I think that Iggy is one of those characters that Dan has almost groomed. It's like, because you're like, why in the world would he carry around somebody that's so neurotic when he's so in control? And then you realize, oh, Iggy's the one that does all the dirty work. Iggy's the one that plants all the 20s. Iggy's the one that takes care of, you know, he's the one that's doing all the all the work and thinking that he's going to get rewarded. Yes. And I think I think Dan could kill both of them. And not, oh, yeah. not bad an eye. He's I so was surprised sinister. we never get that double cross between them. Uh, and I'm, I feel like it's being set up that, and it's going to materialize at a certain point. But that doesn't. And maybe it's just I'm reading something into the performances that, that I shouldn't be. Well, a cool modern day version would be that Dan kills Iggy and he and Miss Miller actually fall in love and go off like Bonnie and Clyde and do some more escapades. But that this is a children's thriller, and so you kind of want, I mean, they're caricatures, right? So you kind of want the bad guys to be caricatures, and we know who the bad guys are. And Oh, yeah. No, I'm just saying the modern version. Oh, yeah, Mr. sure, sure, sure. Mr. Mrs. Smith or something like yeah, that. Yeah, there you go. Well, that would be kind of crazy. Should we talk about Margaret Miller? She plays it real, which is one of the reasons I, I really like the actress, and she also adds tension to the movie because she's not playing this as a kid's version of the movie. This is a woman who has been kidnapped. She is scared for her life, but she's very strong. She's proactive. She tries to get out of the situation. You know, she she's doing what she can. So she's a very strong character, but her playing it real to me is what adds the most tension to the movie. Oh, yeah. she And she's super smart, right? She makes that move with the watch, and it's like, that is genius. Oh, yeah. And when you watch her do that, you're like, that is great. Yeah. Now, hopefully they'll know what's going on here. I could see a version of this movie that's not a cat movie, but I could see a version of this movie where she's the protagonist of a story in which we're trapped in an apartment for the entire movie. There are these two men and we're watching the entire movie unfold through her eyes. And I think she's bringing that level of performance to those scenes. She is far and away the character who has the greatest amount of tension, who is constantly walking a line of she knows if she steps out of line too far, she will die. Yes. And uh, I, I, those scenes, her performance, I think, is riveting throughout. I think so, too. She doesn't overplay it. It's very subtle, but it's there. It's real. It, she's terrific. Oh, boy. I should go last. <laughs> Mary, I'll, I'll start with you. Absolutely no character arc whatsoever. Same person when the, movie, when the movie starts as when it ends. But it's Haley Mills. What the hell are you going to do? I mean, we love Haley Mills, so... Or I do. I love Haley Mills. I also love Haley Mills. Andy, you want to say something before I do my thing? Because you know what's coming. <laughs> I know what you're going to say, and then I've got to come back. So come on. I can't wait. Okay, no, here I go. <laughs> there is something wrong with her. <laughs> there, I don't want, I am not, I am not a psychologist. I don't have a degree in psychology. I know it's not appropriate to diagnose, but I will say, I read some diagnoses and I was like, yep, that's Patty. Because the symptoms that she has, that I, without diagnosing, I'm just going to say, does she have them or does she not have them? Does she, is she grounded in reality? No. And the answer is she is not. She is living in another, on another level, on another plane of existence from everybody that she talks to. Does she demonstrate empathy for what other characters are feeling? She does not. <laughs> In the abstract, she has connected to Miss Miller, but 
It's not clear how strong that relationship is, if there even was one. She's projecting a relationship where there isn't one, but shows no basic consideration for her sister or even for the like career of Kelso or even to the point she is so obs- I could do three hours on her, but she is so determined on this that this is the thing that she's going to do, that she is willing to make poor Edwin, as Mr. Hofstetter, oh, commit a criminal felony. Oh, yeah. By lying to the FBI. She manipulates him. He, If this goes badly, he is going to jail. He is looking at some real prison time. And for me, one of the things that really strikes me as there's something wrong with her is the fact that Ingrid has to say to her at the beginning of the movie, don't you call the police again when when you go again with your crimes sort of thing, like calling the police and trying to get involved because you saw a story on the news. So you're assumed that you have a lead on it. She has done this before. Larry, I completely agree with everything you're saying. Okay. And then I say, so what? (laughs) Like, she's hilarious. She she is exactly what you're saying. Crazy, living in a fantasy world. But but not only so what, but if, if she wasn't a psychopath, is that what we're saying? Mrs. Miller would be dead. I was trying hard not to say it. That was my because point. I don't want to my point. But that's what I looked up. <laughs> or sociopath. Maybe sociopath. Well, okay. So I'm going to play the devil's advocate here, you know, because, okay, Larry, like if let's say she is, she is one. And, and like Tom says, so what, right? She doesn't have any excitement in her life. And I don't know like about y'all, but I've been trapped now <laughs> with two how teenage girls for like how long here in this? Uh, and I can tell you that like they get bored with their lives and so they kind of make it up. And this time the cat's bringing the excitement. You know, her parents, I mean, her parents went to Europe and didn't take her with them. maybe they're trying to get away from her i don't know but like that's kind of that always strikes me as kind of sad oh you're gonna your your sister's a working girl she can take care of you we're gonna leave you by you know and so you know your only salvation really is this neighbor who's you know checking in on you and maybe maybe not checking in on you right so counter argument andy you and i were bored during the pandemic and we started a disney podcast (laughs) neither of us have agency teenagers do not have the agency that adults have neither of us said hey let's call the fbi and try to get our cat involved well not yet i mean how long can this thing go Well, the other weird thing just in on this is that they really never say, are they in high school? Are they in college? Like, it's very formless exactly how old she and the boyfriend are. Canoe. Yes. You don't really know. So that might have helped also. Yeah. it's uh, Their relationship is a little nebulous, isn't it? I'm just going to say it again. If she wasn't, whichever term we're going to come up with, bored, crazy, sociopath, psychotic, if she hadn't done what she did... Mrs. Miller would be dead. Mrs. Miller would have been found in a laundry bag. That is my exact note. Sure. But as long as we all recognize there's an alternate director's cut where Mr. Mr. Hostetter goes to jail 
and dies in prison because he committed a felony by lying to the FBI. Sure, it turned out great. It turns out great when Dexter kills serial killers in Florida. It's still not right. <laughs> and he's still not well. That's my final word on that. Okay. Zeke Kelso. One of my favorite performances is uh, Zeke Kelso. Well, and I think Dean Jones gets a lot of Disney work from this piece, right? Because he's so good. Because interestingly, this is Haley Mills' sixth and final movie for Disney, and it's Dean Jones' first of 11. So they loved him. I just watched The Million Dollar Duck the other night. He's in everything. The love bug, like he's in everything. Uh, The ugly dachshund. I haven't, uh, yeah, anyway. We could just go on and on. Herbie, the love bug, right? Yeah, he's so handsome and charming in this movie. Um, Agreed. I also like the relationship that he establishes with DC. You know, uh, that that there is this sort of antagonism between the two of them. He's allergic to DC. DC does not like him instantly. It's it's it. But they're like it's almost the classic buddy cop formula. These two partners, you, you, you almost expect like Kelso to like bring the cat into the FBI and have like the director yell at him and go, you're a loose cannon, DC. Sort, <laughs> sort of. That's why I'm partnering you with uh, Dean Jones, because, you know, play it by the book. But I think he's a good scene partner for DC. I think he's a good scene partner for Patty in particular. I think you could make a parallel that, and it's not a perfect parallel, but that Dan and Iggy are sort of foils for the relationship that Patty and Kelso have, which is like Kelso is the one who tries to keep them grounded. Patty is the one who tries to to keep, is impulsive. Patty likes the cat. Iggy is impulsive. Iggy likes the cat. That, that sort of there is, and I think cleverly and subtly done, a dark mirror that Danny and Iggy represent the partnership between Kelso and Patty. I enjoy that a lot, but I think, I think Kelso does a lot of work in this movie and it's really solid. He does really solid leading man work throughout. Yeah, very much so. And what's interesting is in today's Hollywood movie, he would end up with Haley Mills and I kind of, cause I didn't remember the movie. I thought, wow, that age difference, that's going to be interesting how they handle it. And so I, I also like the fact that he ends up with the older sister, not what you traditionally would think, which is Haley Mills. So here's a question, Tom uh, and Andy, which is I was actually wondering if they were going to make more of a love triangle meal out of the relationship between uh, Patty, Kelso, and Canoe. Specifically, Patty goes to Kelso, I think, in part because he's good looking and that's oh, the agent she yeah. wants to be working with, and that she's sort of seeking someone different than Canoe. Yes. But then she never actually makes her play for Kelso. It never actually manifests into what I think is even a one-sided attraction. It it becomes very much a working relationship rather than a romantic one. Well, she she definitely is is shopping for her sister, right? I think that's what's happening cuz she's Do she's doing good? oh yeah, she's doing things to like, oh, we can set up in my sister's room and oh, we can do this here and we can oh, go in the closet. <laughs> like, oh, he'll find you, right? <laughs> so she's I mean, she's being patty. Yes. But I would say a more modern movie sensibility and here's a place where I would want to do a rewrite. I would make a big romantic mess out of this. Pa- I would have Patty develop a strong crush on Kelso. I would have Kelso develop a strong crush on uh, Ingrid, and so that the sisters are in competition 
mm-hmm. little bit. That canoe is in a little canoe feels the competition with Kelso, but Kelso isn't really playing that game and just play with the star-crossed lovers of it all just a little bit more. Definitely could have, for sure. Make a bigger meal of it. Let's talk about canoe. We are are we talking about canoe? We should talk about We should canoe. talk about canoe. Okay. So I okay. love canoe. I yep, absolutely go. love canoe because I have, you know, 20 something sons and they are dopey and sandwich eating and they're perfect. And I love them. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, watching him is, but watching his relationship with Patty, it's so funny to me because it's like they're in this middle aged rut, like from the get go. <laughs> you know, they're not affectionate. He's watching TV, eating a sandwich. She's, you know, you don't, you know, you don't need enough to keep a bird alive, you know, whatever. And then, you know, oh, bills, 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 because which aren't even his bills Whoa. at his house. And that's a good point. And and that also is indicative of these two could very well end up like Mr. And Mrs. McDougal next door. Absolutely. They're, and that was my note. That's my note. That they were absolutely <laughs> sort of a precursor to what's going to happen if something doesn't give in this relationship, right? Oh, for sure. It's another pair of foiling, right? Because the thing about Mrs. McDougal is she's always trying to make other people's dramas her drama, which yeah. is exactly the problem that Patty has. The interesting thing about Canoe with the pipe playing and and the bills is it reminds me of the movie we did a few weeks ago, Andy, Peter Pan, the idea of Peter playing father and that Canoe is sort of playing father. But he's also playing father in this sort of sexless way that Peter Pan plays father. Right. Like for all that, for all that Mrs. McDougal is scandalized that there's a man inside of this house, I don't get a sense that canoe has a sex drive or that he experiences lust or physical attraction he's playing at being a partner he's playing at being a husband he's playing at being a dad i we don't even do we like they they don't kiss i don't know that he like puts his arm they're they're just there that's all true and he has no drive but much more than well everybody much more than patty even miss miss Dougal changes more than Patty because she doesn't change. But Canoe actually has probably the biggest arc in the movie, right? I mean, he does finally find this lust for her. He follows her all over town, ends up, you know, in the garage door and changes enough by the end that she's like, oh, hey, okay, you you have changed. So I I agree with, with Andy. I really like him and he has a huge character arc, which is nice. I like his performance as well. I mean, I, I think he's doing, and he's fun. He's fun on the screen. There, there is some, and I don't blame this on the performance. I don't even really, I mean, I guess I have to blame it on the writing and directing, but it's really the time period. Uh, there is some aggressive sort of chauvinistic behavior throughout this movie uh, that Canoe, Canoe is not the only one to exhibit um, because certainly, certainly Gregory does as well. And I find that unappealing. As does Dan. What does Dan make Mrs. Miller do? Go cook right. right? Yes. You, you're I the mean, one you want to talk cook. about a metaphor for like a woman's role. A woman is like a, a hostage kept in a kitchen forced to cook for men who, who are planning. I'm, that's that's a dark metaphor you just walked <laughs> me down there. Like, hey, Dan pays for that, right? Doesn't he Doesn't he pay for that? And then his whole plan is foiled. Oh, yeah. Right? Sure. Because women are more resourceful, perhaps, than he realized. Larry, that's a really great thematic depth of this movie is that they were pointing out 
all of those roles that women were forced into back at that time, somebody should start laughing at me. But, but you know, I'm just trying to convince Larry how good this movie is. That's it's thematically rich, commenting on the mores of society back then and how women were trapped in the kitchen. Right, and if we're going to talk about that, we can also talk about Ingrid uh, Randall, right? Because yes. she is a great she place. Is stuffed in, she's in this expectation of a relationship that if a guy takes you to work then you're obligated to date him and possibly marry him and wear yellow for him and, and, you know, placate his mother and all that. A horrible guy. Yeah. He's awful. He is the worst. The worst. All right. So, but here's the thing about Ingrid that I'm going to throw out. And here's my counterpoint to the thematic depth of, I think, uh, Mrs. (laughs) Miller, who I will argue with you is perhaps one of the heroes of this movie. I believe that this movie posits that women are shrewish monsters who attack men until a butt switch in their brain flips to attraction. Um, and Ingrid in particular is, I, I, look, I wouldn't want to date Gregory either. We're not seeing her on her best day. She, <laughs> she goes to work with Gregory and she's at home with Patty and Lord knows what I would be like if yes. that was my life. Yes. But you would date date any weird mobile that came down the bike. (laughs) She is on the attack all the time. For the first, I would say, 80% of the movie, everything out of her mouth is shrill and shrewish. I'm not saying unjustified. I'm just saying it's all on that abrasive sort of note. Until suddenly she realizes that Dean Jones is good looking. And a switch gets flipped and she starts getting soft and demure. And I don't want to own the misogyny that I'm experiencing through this movie. But I think this movie posits we see several women in this movie. Mrs. Miller is great. Patty is bonkers. And Ingrid, Mrs. McDougal, Mrs. Tabin are monstrously shrewish. I, I would disagree argue that about, everybody I, in this movie is neurotic, though. I disagree about Ingrid. And she, I think it's a really positive look for the time in particular of a young woman who has a job and she's attractive and she's supporting her sister. I mean, the parents are mentioned like three times, I think just superfluously. I mean, there, there's no indication to me in this movie those parents are ever in the house or if they come in the house, anything is going to change between these. So in that way, I thought Ingrid was depicted as pretty. She's got a good job. She's working hard. I, she's a role model for certain young women back then. Okay, so well, then the question becomes, you're Zeke Kelso. Why do you find Ingrid attractive? More attractive than Patty. Because she's hot. <laughs> she's Hotter than Haley Mills? Yeah. Haley Mills is supposed to be like, you know, in our minds anyway, in our Disney minds, she's supposed to be what, 17, 18? And she's crazy. And she's it- crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, if I was Kelso, when the case is over, (laughs) I'm glad I'm never going to that house again. I'm out. There's also a salvation part, too, because doesn't Zeke sort of saves her from Roddy McDowell? Yes. Because there's conflict between Roddy, the uh, Gregory character and Zeke. Yeah. And so that, you know, kind of he kind of wins the girl that way, too. And like beating. I I totally get why she goes for Zeke. No argument. Kelso's great. Larry, I will agree with you that we are 
seeing Ingrid at her worst. Yes. At the end of her rope with Patty's craziness, at the end of her rope with Roddy McDowell, like she is at the end of the rope, but that's, we don't want to see movie characters at their best. We see them at the worst so that they can change and she changes also. Well, so I would throw out that what's missing for me for her is the scene that transitions her from this person at the end of her rope to this person who falls in love with Zeke Kelso. And it doesn't have to be a long scene. It's there. It just needs to be a little bit more of a meal. It's the closet. That's that scene you're talking about. That, that, I, I may have to rewatch that scene because I didn't <laughs> feel like when. She, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm in disagreement that that scene is where the relationship is founded. That I guess that's the story they're telling their grandchildren. She falls on top the, of him, and there's a door between them. He the cat has left the house. Zeke has to follow the cat. He even tells Ingrid, "I can't get you out of the closet right now because I got to go follow the cat." What does he do? He sacrifices his. He potentially sacrifices his career and Mrs. Miller's life by going and getting her out of the closet. That he locked her in. No, Haley Mills locked her in. Oh, but, okay, well, again, that speaks to Haley Mills, because there is a concern she will actually die in there. He says to her, you better put yourself down. Yeah, you better not scream, you'll (laughs) lose the polyoxidant. That's right. I mean, okay, that's like, (laughs) that's basic human, like, I don't get any medals for not pursuing a cat when someone is locked in a closet without oxygen. It's life or death, Larry. She's going to live, right? She's going to be in there, and she'll be in there for a while, but there's a woman's life at stake, right? Okay, so then, Mandy... This may be your trolley moment here. Okay, no, no. I'm going to retract this, and I'm going to use this in support of my argument that Patty Randall is not well, and we have (laughs) now demonstrated that she is a danger to everyone she lives with. Yes. We agree. Agree completely. Okay. I'm so glad. I'm so glad we got here. Okay, fair enough. Mrs. Miller still would be dead if Patty weren't crazy. Sure. (laughs) I just wonder what other cases she's intervened with. What is her track record? This is the time it worked. How many times has she diverted the police from the actual investigation (laughs) to to follow around other animals? I don't know. There is probably a, a stream, a string of bodies behind Patty but this is her redemption because she finally doesn't kill somebody. If you tell me that Patty's parents aren't in Europe, but that Patty has them in the basement tied <laughs> up, <laughs> I would crafting, She's cra- gone so far as to craft these postcards talking about her dad, you know, getting sick on clam sauce, but he's you really in the me, basement. If you can tell me definitively I'm wrong about that theory, but then if I ever watch this movie again, I'm looking for clues that they're somewhere in the house. I love that idea. It's a great idea. Okay, Gregory. Oh, I mean, another great performance because he's so hateful. I don't mean hateful, hateable. Incidentally, just a just a little sidebar. He's driving Walt Disney's actual car in the movie. Wow! And Disney actually rented it back to the production because he apparently felt guilty. From what I read, he felt guilty about having such an expensive car, <laughs> so he, he rented it back to the movie. That's funny. But I mean, but then he made money on the <laughs> deal. So. Of course. <laughs> maybe maybe he felt bad. It's a great performance because Roddy McDowell can be the most charming actor in the world, you know? So it's pretty amazing to see him so young and so handsome and so horrible. Like, he's horrible and gross. Like, the way he gets close to her and starts talking about his mother, you're just like, it's like Norman Bates. It is like, 
that is a note I have too, Tom. It's like Norman Bates-ish. Yes, yes. It's like the Disney And we never version. see the mother. So she could be dead up in the house uh, uh, like he's taxidermied her like Norman did. Who knows? Well, then maybe he and Patty should be together. Now, <laughs> they have yeah. that in common. That is a great movie. Yeah. And, but here's another thing. Patty, with all this crazy machinations, kept, what, what does not happen in the movie? Ingrid does not go over to that house in yellow for the mother. And if the mother's dead up top, Ingrid was never coming out of that house ever to be seen again. Right? I agree with you. Which There's is a weird good moment, movie. though. Like, so he's that kind of character who doesn't read a woman's body language. Right. Because because if he was even slightly in tune with the nonverbal communication that she's giving, he would know he doesn't listen. He doesn't really hear her. He doesn't really see her. He aggressively violates her body space, Uh, not to the point where we have to be like get up from our seats because we want to go pound him. But it's it's like if we were there, we would be like, whoa, buddy. And yet. Like doesn't go for the kiss that she's offering. That's yes. how blind he is to her body language. Exactly. That's why I think he's not even interested in sex. It's a serial killer. He's getting her over to the house to join mother up in the bed. The only person who's interested in sex is Mrs. McDougal. <laughs> it's true. There is no one else who even can consi- All of the other characters do not have sex. What the DC and Mrs. McDougal are the two characters that have an awareness that sex is a thing that can happen between a man and a woman. Now, Larry, if you're Mrs. McDougal and the only person you have the option of having sex with is William Demarest, wouldn't you look out the window and be interested in everybody else's sex life? I mean, yes. I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm not arguing. And again, great performances by both of them. There's it is story. another place in which I, I think we see, you know, just like with Patty, this is an example. Mrs. McDougal is wrong. Her delusion about what is going on inside the house is wrong, and yet she is willing to stir up all of this drama just to be at the center of it To it because her life is so boring. She and Patty are the same. They're not opposites. They're the same. Yeah, yes. they're both bored. They're both bored with their lives, and they have to stir things up in order to – and she just does it from her living room, right? Completely agree. Uh, and Mr. McDougal is te- – he's funny, but he's terrible, and – I had a hard time with, look, look, you know, we've, we've talked about some body shaming in the past with Aladdin, and I don't, I don't think we, we are going to give this movie a pass either. The fact that she t- he tells the police <laughs> that, that it's actually a man dressed as a woman, and the police identify her as, a, listen, buddy, and, like, that's, and that this is the worst disguise for a woman I've ever seen. It's mean. Elsa Lanchester is one of the nicest, la- apparently one of the nicest ladies of all time. One of the longest marriages in Hollywood with Charles Lawton. That, I, mean, I didn't know she was married to Charles Lawton. No, for like for 50 years. Oh, wow. And in fact, another top 10 of mine that if you haven't watched, you must watch tonight. Witness for the Prosecution yes. with Charles Lawton, Marlene Dietrich, Tyrone Power, and Elsa Lanchester. They're amazing together. But look, she worked constantly. She probably has a longer resume than Tom Cruise. So many movies because... I'm just going to say it. She was not the most attractive person on the face of the planet. There's a great story, similar story about, oh, who's the Wicked Witch of the West? Margaret, what's her name? Hamilton? No. Margaret Hamilton. Also one of the nicest ladies in the world. And they were interviewing her on this uh, well, on this uh, documentary about the making of Wizard of Oz. And everybody wanted to be in the movie when they were making it. And her agent called her up and he said, Margaret, they want you for the witch. 
And she said, which, which witch, the good witch or the bad witch? And her agent said, oh, now, Margaret, really? <laughs> like, which one do you think? And she told that story about herself. It was so sweet. So they worked a lot because they weren't that attractive. I just think it's mean-spirited. I absolutely love you talk about hammocks. I love how, you know, he shows up and he's got a hearing aid, right? Yeah. And you're like, what is, like, that's an odd detail. But then she uses the hearing aid With to try to spy pole. upstairs. And I'm like, that is so wicked funny. And Larry, what you're saying is true. It is mean. But it also sets up her great moment at the end where she tells the cop when he brings her home, you might as well not you might as well just stay right here because I'm going in there and I'm going to kill it. Right. <laughs> so she- that's a great, and that's a great moment. <laughs> it's a great moment. It's so funny. I don't, I don't want to be the person who's like, like does, doesn't we like hate the movie. I don't hate this movie. This movie has never hurt me or wronged me. There are lots of great moments and that's a great moment. We have already established that I've been making the list. This movie was a precursor for, and actually if not influenced then created Technopelum 123, Reservoir Dogs, Turner and Hooch, The Fugitive Midnight Run, Room, all taking place in one room. Look at all these great movies that it has. Those movies would not be around if it weren't for that darn cat. Exclamation point. (laughs) I'm just messing with Larry. Let's jump into um, Mrs. Tabin. We have Mrs. Tabin and Mr. Hofstadter to talk about. So Mrs. Tabin is one of my favorite characters in this movie. She's tough and she's naive and sweet and they t- she wants her $20 and she gets her $20 and he takes it from her. And, but she brings up soup for the sick old lady. I think she's another foil opportunity for those robbers. And, you know, it might have been interesting. There's a version of this movie where if she had discovered Miss Miller and then the two add her to the mix of the, those that they're kidnapping. Oh, yeah. You know, and I thought I thought that was kind of a I kind of expected that actually, and, and if, thought it was if, kind of missed. If she had ended kidnapped up there, it would have I think turned into the ransom of Red Chief, where they were trying to get rid of her. You know, <laughs> like ruthless people, because she is she right. is a, another shrill, loud woman. But so this is this is my thing. You know, by the time she comes into the movie, like I'm exhausted by her. <laughs> not, not because of her performance. Again, I have no complaints about the performances in this movie. But what this movie did not need is one more shrewish woman intruding in places which are none of her business. We have two already and the movie's like let's go back for a third uh, this movie the third yes because it's a principle of three larry you have to, no. you're gonna have two shrews you gotta have three <laughs> what what we're seeing here based on the the sampling of women in this movie is that 60 percent of all women like are busy bodies who you like yelling at people and are unrelentlessly horrible but see, that goes back to the thematic uh, part of the movie, which is depicting that women back then, because of their roles, didn't have anything to do but do this. Again, I'm, I'm joking. I'm, I'm, I'm giving thematic depth. But anyway, she is shrill and loud. <laughs> and wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how's a kidnapped woman not her business? And she is the manager of the building, and they do, against their rent bylaws, have somebody extra up there. So it is her business, right? Well, I mean, but they give her the money and she still doesn't let up. They steal the money back from her. She does not get that money. 
Well, but as far as she knows, she got it. <laughs> like, again, another example of someone not reading other people's body. Look, they're monsters. But in those scenes, I'm with them. Get out of my apartment. Right. I don't want you here. And I would be willing to bet that, Eve, that somewhere deep within Mrs. Miller, who's hopeful she'll be discovered and rescued, is also thinking like, I mean, you know, if I wasn't in this room. Well, Larry, how, how's that for complexity that at some point in that darn cat, they actually get us, the audience, to side with the vicious killers who are about to kill Mrs. Miller? That's complex. Because they're not as bad as a woman. <laughs> they might be killers, but at least they're men. And like, their mind's in their own business. They don't go out of the house. They're not intruding. Women are intrusive. This is, by the way, anybody listening to the podcast who fast forwarded to this point, this is not my worldview. I'm positing this is the movie's worldview. Touche. I will All say right, touche. Mr. Hofstetter, Edwin, the wonderful, oh, amazing Edwin. Poor man. I mean, he went straight to a bar and had a shot of bourbon or more, right? I mean, that's that was the most tense scene in the movie because, as you say, Larry, she's doing a felony. He's doing a felony. She's, you know, oh, it was very upsetting. This could be the start of a movie in which a life's man is ruined through a chance encounter at his store. And maybe, <laughs> maybe like there's a version of The Fugitive that is about Mr. Hofstetter. And it's like, you don't understand. <laughs> I thought I was going to be in the papers. But oh it's this great, God. it's this great, you know, we talk about reversals sometimes. And this is a great reversal because he absolutely refuses to be part of what he believes to be a lie. No, I'm not going to do it. And then here's the phone call and it's him and he looks at her and he, and he goes along with it. It's his choice. Yes. But there is a tension later on that the FBI has like like the head of the FBI has figured out that maybe that call was not a legitimate call. And like if like like he starts to piece together that maybe it was actually Patty who went there. Like there's that to and like like I'm but just saying. Always forgiven because Patty was right. <laughs> maybe for the first time in her life. Well, this leads to one thing. As much as I love this movie, and I do, and think it's a great script, it does annoy me when a script ignores a very important question. And there is a very important question in here, which is that does Mrs. Miller know anybody else? Does she have a friend or a husband or a family or a mother? Because the first thing the FBI should have done when they got the watch was go talk to whoever she knows and say, is this her watch? And when they said yes, then all of a sudden they know it's her watch, right? But then we don't have a movie, right? So they they conveniently ignore that. Qu I just wish they had kind of said she was this, you know, single person or her husband had died or like that there was that there was some way they couldn't identify the watch. But there's an easy solution to this, Tom. There's an easy solution to this, which is make there be a real connection between Patty and Margaret. Make them friends. Make there be like a connection. Have Patty be someone who, who is like, I haven't heard from Mrs. Miller in so, so long. Now I find out this I I love that woman. I need to get but her there back. There is that moment, Larry. There is that moment. I mean, it's there's subtle, but it's there. It's there, what, but it's where's subtle. that moment, Dandy? No, there's the bank teller. Like she says, it's our bank teller, and don't we go to the laundromat with her, Andy? It's her bank teller. It's not her friend. If you know how small this town is, they know who the deli guy is. <laughs> it, but but here's what I'm saying: if you want for for Patty to have a legitimate non 
insane reason to be invested in this investigation other than making her life interesting. It could simply be like, Margaret is my friend. It doesn't have to be my best friend. But like, I'm worried about Margaret rather than I want to be in an FBI investigation. My boy, I'm tired of seeing surfing movies. Like, like, that's not hard. That's not hard to do. All right. So the bottom line, I think, I think where we're reaching consensus is that everyone in this movie is neurotic except for the cat. This movie has made me more neurotic. I think I was fine before this. <laughs> All right. So, Tom, we have this recurring segment called Protagonist Problems, okay. which uh, we already kind of alluded to it. Do protagonists have to change? And, you know, if, if Haley Mills is the protagonist in this movie, she doesn't change a lick. Um, she stays, you know, and really neither does DC. He is his own character. Uh, 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 I would counter that. Okay. By the end of the movie, he has settled down and made a family. Ah, uh, but that is a change in circumstances, <laughs> not necessarily a change in character. Well, we don't quite know if the pregnancy was an accident or not. He may have chosen to settle down with her as opposed to, you know, illegitimately impregnated or by accident. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm an expert in cat body language, so I can <laughs> I can tell. But but I'll throw out I'll throw out here. Not all protagonists have to change. Uh, You watch a James Bond movie, and James Bond is definitely the protagonist, and yet we never actually feel that he's significantly impacted by the adventure that he's had. When he goes on another adventure, he doesn't need to reference his earlier adventures. He's He's a constant. But it is usually the work of the protagonist to change. And I would argue that the protagonist of this movie is not DC, although delightful, and is not Patty, but that most of the protagonist work is being done by Kelso. Yes, that is true. Because Kelso is the one who has been tasked by the FBI to find Margaret Miller. It's his mission. He is the stranger who has entered into this house with this drama with these two sisters. Uh, He's the person whose career is at stake. And he is, to a degree, transformed because this case began as just another case for him, but he becomes connected to Ingrid and that makes him value other things. The other part of being a protagonist that we talk about is, are we seeing the movie through their eyes? Like, is the viewer rooted in, in in that character's viewpoint? And as much as we watch Patty, I have no clue what's going on, and I'm gesturing towards my head, I have no idea what's going on up here. I don't know why she does the things that she does. I only know I wouldn't do them. But I always know what Kelso is doing and why he's doing it. True. It's also an oddly objective movie. Like, we really don't see anything through anybody's eyes. The narrative structure of this movie is very much like uh, in Blood Simple. So now we have another movie that this movie influenced. Blood Simple is very much this way where you don't see anything through anybody's eyes. It's a very objective godlike view of the events that are going on. And I would say this movie, because look, if we, if we were going to write it traditionally and it's Kelso's movie seen through his eyes, we would begin the movie with him. Yeah. We have a late entry. If he's the protagonist, Tommy keeps stealing my notes because I literally have written down here. Yeah. Godlike view, <laughs> third person POV. <laughs> and it is, it's, it's that typical, it's a thing that is always kind of, problematic about Disney movies, but it also is really great about Disney movies in that 
we have this, you know, dramatic tension because we know things that the audience doesn't know. Or the audience, we as the audience know that the characters don't know. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. The godlike objective view is the most comforting view an audience can have. And I think that's probably why Disney movies have that so often, because it's just comforting. Yeah, it's comforting to children. It makes sense to them. And they they get to know that, you know, we kind of seeded it up front that this cat's probably going to foil this deal. We just don't know how it's going to happen. And so now we get to see the cat. Now we spend time with Kelso. And so it's got this episodic nature. But at the same time, we have this kind of like, oh, look, look, this is going to happen. This is going to be funny. Or this is going to be sad. Or I'm scared. Or what, you know. Here's the one thing I would add for for the to this movie, and I I think it with it's a small adjustment, but the thing that I was looking to see was Kelso's relationship with DC undergoing a change by the end of the movie, to the point of like like Kelso throughout this movie has been allergic. Uh, DC has reacted reacted violently to Kelso's presence. One scene where Kelso is in the the room with the cat. And he can pick up the cat and the cat cat lets him. And Kelso's no longer allergic because it was all in his... That the two of them, through their shared journey, have learned to, tr- to trust each other and have turned a corner in their relationship. I feel, I feel like they're so far apart when they're first partnered that getting to that place at the end would have been a nice button on their relationship. Kind of. I, think, I feel like maybe that was there. I could see that being there after... The moment where Frank's being cuffed, you know, and he says, yeah. "No, DC, you're all right." You know, you're kind of, you know. And and I don't mean moment. to to jump ahead to the sequel question, but like Turner and Hooch, one sequel to this movie could be Kelso and DC. Sure, huh. interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about themes really quickly. What are some themes that y'all saw in this? Misogyny. Um, <laughs> is that a theme? Crazy people save the world. Crazy people save the world. I would guess, uh, I hate saying this, woman's intuition. I would say men should be worthy of a relationship. Okay, I'll go with that. that. Yeah. I'll go with that. They should be proved worthy of a relationship. And also, my daughter says, crime does not pay. There you go. That's good. <laughs> except, <laughs> if, except if you're lying to the FBI, that crime totally pays off. Unless you're, yeah, okay, so. All right, so let's jump to pitch time. Tom, Tom jumped again, but it's good. So there's a remake of this film that happened in 1997, and it has this great cast. So Christina Ritchie's in it, uh, Dougie Doug, Dean Jones is in it again, Peter Boyle, Diane Cannon, Michael McKean, Estelle Parsons, John Ratzenberger. Wow. And we might want to tackle that in one of our episodes at some point. But sure. how might we do the sequel or prequel to this movie? Who wants to go first? So I see the future of that darn cat. Uh, I think its best chance of being a successful property is to tie it into another successful Disney property. So I want a movie that's an interstitial movie that brings us from one property to the other. And so my argument for the sequel is we send that darn cat with Agent Kelso to another country in Eastern Europe. The country I'm thinking of is called Druselstein. You know, they they go on an adventure there. And at the end of the adventure, we learn that the agency uh, has decided they need to train more pets to be to work for the agency. And it is actually a Phineas and Ferb prequel explaining how Perry the Platypus becomes the agent of an organization called ALCA. That's the organization without a cool acronym. And at the end of the movie, Kelso presents 
DC with a little fedora that makes him Agent DC, if you will. And, and, and like the after the credit sequence, we meet a young major monogram as he's as he's fa- founding the agency, and it all takes place within the Phineas and Ferb uh, verse. And then there, and then that launches into the next James Bond type series of films. Yeah, that's that's I can't. It's hard to top that. I, I mean, mine kind of came up as we were talking, which because I like the dark stuff. So it would be that Kelso marries Ingrid, moves into the house. We find out that the parents are trapped downstairs in like a, you know in like a cage or some kind of pulp fiction dungeon. He also finds out that yes, the mother is dead over in Gregory's house. And then it turns out that Mr. and Mrs. McDougal are, have organized this whole neighborhood into kind of like this Rosemary's Baby satanic cult. And just like in, in Burnt Offerings, Kelso gets his tongue cut out and is like trapped down in the basement with the parents or up in the bed with the taxidermy Gregory's mother. And that's the end. Evil lives on. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. Mine is very different. <laughs> so I, I was thinking more karmic. So it's been really a lot of years, but Iggy and Dan are finally out of jail for their bank robbery. And Dan had hidden some of the money from the briefcase in the upstairs apartment. And now they're going to go back to retrieve it. And Patty is now a grandmother who has the great, great, great grandson of the unneutered DC. (laughs) And she's now also the owner of the apartment complex. And upon their arrival, the robbers discover the money's gone. The two blame Patty and they kidnap her. And Patty sends up a smoke signal to her own grandchildren who eventually foil the robbers and discover their grandmother. And what I like about this is it's actually set up in the first movie. There is this missing $90,000 from the briefcase. Right, exactly. Well, this has been Once Upon a Disney with our very special guest and my good friend, Tom Provost. Thank you for having me. You absolutely. You absolutely should check out Tom's amazing nonprofit, Bags and Grace, at bagsandgrace.com. I know a little goes a long way there. Can you give it a 30-second plug? We're feeding the homeless, and a lot of organizations that are great, the homeless have to find them and come to them to get the food. And what we do is we create bags of food and sundries, and we bring them to homeless people on the street so they don't have to go anywhere. And we, each bag can feed and help someone from three to five days. And each bag is about $30, so even one donation of 30 bucks will help somebody for three to five days on the street. I love it. So next week, we're tackling Return to Oz with more special guests. And you can find us again on our Facebook page, Once Upon a Disney Podcast, and on Twitter at, at Andy Redwine and at Larry Brenner Six. And should you have a pressing question for us or Tom to answer, we can get it, we can certainly get a, a message to Tom. You can always drop an email into our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, see you real soon. See you real soon.